generate is supporting my vision to improve the financial literacy of 100,000 Kiwis by sponsoring Keep the Change. Cheers, Generate. Head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash change to find out more. Getting in the KiwiSaver fund that suits you and your situation is key to making sure you're maximising your investment. Generate are an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of long-term performance and they can help you do exactly this. Their advisors can meet with you to talk about all your options when it comes to KiwiSaver to help you decide what's best for you. Too many people never get KiwiSaver advice, but not you. Go to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash change to book a no-obligation chat with a Generate advisor. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. We could live for a thousand years. But if I hurt you, I make one. We could fly Cause we all have wings But some of us Don't know why Welcome back You are listening to another episode of KeepTheChange.co.nz's Money Mail Good to be tuning in with you as always A very cool lesson this week Something a little bit different as well telling a little bit of a tale of one of the stocks that I have invested in. Now, as soon as I sent this out, I've had a number of people, when I say a number of people, it's classic people on social media, oh, a heap of you have been asking me about this. That means three people respond saying, what's the share? Tell us what the share is. But by the time you know what the share is, it, it doesn't really matter. But I will tell you in this as well. However, the it's not like you're going to go to the stock and you're going to get this massive gain. I should probably now give you the context of what we're going on about to start with anyway. But remember that, just wanted to preface this at the start, that there's lessons in here and it's not about what the stock is. It's about what you learn through getting something like this in your stock portfolio. So if you haven't read Money Mail, and this is the first of what you're hearing about this, it is called 60% Tax-Free Gains. Now, I got a bit of a fright last week when I logged into Sharesies and saw one of my stocks had increased by 60%. I refreshed the page a couple of times to make sure there wasn't a minus sign that had failed to load because that is what it's been like for a number of my Ripper investments lately. But no, legit, a 60% gain. And I think after writing this, it's actually at about 70%. So I've got a 70% gain on one of my stocks, but we called this one 60% tax-free gains, and we'll get to why it's tax-free too. But you're probably wondering, well, what happened? Well, one of the companies that I own shares in got approached to be brought out by an overseas company. The overseas company are willing to pay $1.70 per share for every single share in the company. Basically, they want the entire business. So they are saying, hey, we'll pay you $1.70 for every share. Give us that we are keen. Now we're not going to dig into all of the details of about the business and what they do and why this company would want to buy them, but I know some people will be interested in that stuff and you can probably go away and read about that on your own if you are interested when I tell you what the share is. But 
at the time of making this offer, shares in this business sitting on the stock market at about 90 cents. So this offer from the business that wants to buy them out represents a premium of over 85%. When something like this happens, the share price instantly rockets up because people anticipate that this deal could go through so they want a piece of that premium. So the market reacts, right, because they hear that this company want to buy a company that you have shares in and people think, well, shit, I want to get ahead of that deal going through. Uh, if I'm going to get $1.70 per share and I can get them for even $1.20 a share, you're still going to make money, right? So the market reprices the true value of the stock. Now, there's a lesson in that straight away. And what that is basically is that the market ultimately determines the price of everything. Now, the market before this company came along had the business priced at around 90 cents per share. Whereas to this company overseas that wants to buy the New Zealand business, they are saying, that's $1.70. We'll pay $1.70 for those shares. Give us every one of them. Instantly, the market goes, whoa, we got this wrong. And you see this play out all the time in the world with just different things that get priced at different amounts. Now, as an example, I purchased a little while ago my renewal for the Coro Lounge, and I purchased two years at once because I knew that there's no way that's going to get cheaper when the input costs are food, technology, people, i.e. wages, etc., etc. I thought, shit, this is going to get more expensive, so I'll pay for it now for the two years so that I don't have to pay again in a year's time to renew it for another year when it would have gone up in price. Now, again, that's an example of me anticipating what could happen in the market uh, and buying it the current price, but I'm sure the future price would change too. And in two years' time or even in a year's time, people are still going to be willing to pay that. So there will be a willing buyer and seller at that market, but it's also an example of trying to pay for things to beat inflation in some ways, knowing that the costs are still going to go up. But we also see this play out probably more commonly in houses, for instance, where you might find from a real estate agent, they say, oh, this house is going to be worth blah, 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 and we expect it to go for this. And then the market comes along, and actually, Sally's been looking for a place for fucking six years and hasn't found it, but this is the perfect one. They're massively emotionally attached and they go, yeah, we'll pay another, we'll pay $400,000 more than what anybody else is willing to bid. And everyone sits there and goes, what the hell? You know, you didn't say it was going to go for this to a real estate agent that's gone way past the CV, all of the things that you anchor, what you think the market is going to determine the price to be. And then willing buyer comes along and goes, boom. This place is worth this to me, therefore the true cost or true price is what they are willing to pay. So you can see how the market ultimately determines what something is worth and it always comes back to what is someone willing to pay for something. Now in my area of work in accounting, often we come across people who are willing to buy or sell their business and I think that they often just assume that it's a little bit like a house. You should be able to log on to businesses.co.nz and see what your business is worth. But there are many different factors that go into valuing a business. 
And so we explain all of that, and that blows their mind because they kind of go, oh, well, you can't just give me a figure of what this is worth. And then we say, well, also, the true sale price is actually just going to be what someone's willing to pay for the business. So you can get all these calculations done and have this all on paper, but if someone's not willing to pay it, it doesn't actually mean that your business is worth that. So back to our example here, we've got a business that's 90 cents per share, and an American company's coming along going, we'll give you $1.70. The market's repricing it to get closer to that, and that is effectively closer now to the true price of what someone is really willing to pay for those shares. Now, it could still be undervalued because someone else could come along and go, hey, we want to buy that and add that to this collection of businesses that we have, and the price could change again. But hopefully you can see how a lot of the little things that you learn along the way with economies, business, finance, markets, you can start to see them play out when you understand this stuff a little bit better and have your you know, your mind turned towards it. But of course, this deal, it still needs to actually be done and signed off by all the shareholders. This deal is therefore subject to shareholder and other regulatory approval, even including the courts. Now, when I first got into buying shares, I had shares in Auckland Airport and I can't remember who it was, but it was either the Commerce Commission or something at a government level, they basically said, no, this deal cannot go through. And I remember being gutted because I was getting a massive premium, same sort of situation on my shares. I was only a young fella and I thought, fuck, I've clocked the game here. I've got my Auckland Airport shares, Some I think it was a Canadian pension fund wanted to buy it and basically... It didn't get approved at a government type level or at a New Zealand rules type level just saying, no, we want to hold that asset back in New Zealand hands. I could have that a little bit wrong, but it was something like that. And as a maybe 17, 18, 19-year-old lad who was trying to start to learn about investing, I thought, what the fuck? How can I make a decision, invest, to hopefully better my future someone comes along and goes you made the right choice young son we want those shares off you and we're going to give you a premium and then someone stands in and goes no no that's not how this works you can't and I think that was a big wake-up call for me of whoa there is way more at play in this world than what I realized And that was probably my first big lesson of shit a deal's not done until the money is in the bank account so This is exciting to see if you've got shares in a business like this and someone comes along and wants to buy it, but there's also risk that this may not go ahead, so I'm not really getting too excited. But I could sell the shares today on the open market at $1.60-ish, I think they are, and cash out. And that's actually what I had a look at doing yesterday before I recorded this so that I could give you that as an example. Now, on sharesies as well, this is something that I've been pointing out, and I need to catch up with the team from Sharesies and then get better clarity on this because I don't want to be putting you guys wrong. But one thing that I don't like about the way the pricing works now is that say I went to sell these, I it comes up and says, Royal, you're going to have to pay a $25 fee. Now, if you one day want to get out of all of your Sharesies shares that you've brought, say you've got 20 lots of stocks, I don't know if there is a subscription or a fee that sort of covers you just getting out of your entire portfolio or are you having to pay $25 for each of those individual shares that you sell because they are over and above, this is for people who've got larger amounts in there, 
than what your subscription allows you to buy and sell in a month. And that could get pretty costly because it's exciting to have multiple companies to invest into, but if you keep doing that over a long period and then one day actually want to pull that out and put it towards something, um, or you want to sell because there's a takeover bid, for instance, you're going to get smacked with these fees. But is that perhaps just the cost of doing business as well? But I will catch up with the crew, maybe even do a pop of them at some stage. But basically to sell these shares, the market was closed yesterday. So I'm recording this on a Saturday morning. It was a Friday night when I had a look at it. So the market would be closed and wouldn't the transaction wouldn't happen until Monday anyway. But the fee would be 25 bucks for me to clear through those and actually turn them back into cash. But the more relevant point, I guess, of this money mail is that this is one of those interesting situations that doesn't come up all the time during your investing journey, but something you can learn a lot from when it does happen. Most people and most investing stories are basically invest over the long term, it keeps going up in value, and hopefully you get some dividends dividends along the way too, and maybe you draw down on it eventually when you need some cash, right? But this is the cool thing that you get to learn all these different things because it's a market and each company you own is a business and it's doing shit and somebody else might be interested in it. And so you get to start thinking about a whole heap of different things that, that you wouldn't have if you aren't investing nor paying sort of attention to it. So obviously if the sale goes ahead, then a number of people who held this stock for years will have quite a large capital gain. But this ha- this share has actually gone like up and down over time periods too. So again, we spoke about this recently, you'd have to have the timing of that, right? But in New Zealand, we do not have a capital gains tax. So that means that all of these people will be able to cash out tax-free without paying any tax. That is, of course, if they get a gain. So say, like me, if you held them at a rough price of, say, 90 cents and you're going to get a $1.70, you're going to get a tax-free gain. Now, it'll be exciting for the shareholders but a lot of people may think that that is unfair. And that's something that I don't know what the answer is. What is fair? What is unfair? We've each got a different definition of this. Now, I'll highlight this again, because recently on the Instagram story, I asked people about whether it's fair or unfair around a few different examples. And one was when they gave out the cost of living payment, there were people who might earn a million dollars in a household, but the uh, other person in the household doesn't work, doesn't have an income, and therefore they got the cost of living payment. Is that fair or unfair? You can probably guess which way most people would think about that. Same thing if two uh, couples worked in a household and they both earned $71,000, they weren't going to get the cost of living payment. And a num- there's a number of you know different intricacies around that. Other people were overseas, but they were entitled to it, but other Kiwis weren't. Unfair, fair. Who knows? But with all things rules, there's always going to be a fair and an unfair. One of the others, as I said, is it fair or unfair that we don't have a capital gains tax in New Zealand? Now, if I give you the example soon, you will go, oh, that's unfair. Probably. You might lean that way. But when I said to people, is it unfair or fair that you can buy a house, live in it, sell it in time, make a capital gain, not pay tax on that, is that fair or unfair? Most people were like, that's fair, because that's how we've been conditioned 
in New Zealand, right? And even when we talk about capital gains taxes, we say, well, we'll take out the family home. Well, why is the family home excluded? No one really has that conversation. We're just like, oh, well, because it's kind of what we've always done, so we need to make sure we still get the votes and stuff. That's going to fuck a whole heap of people off. So you're going to take that out of the net, aren't you? But let me give you this example, because this is a true-ish story. Now, I don't know the exact details of this, and I don't want to be unfair to this person nor their family, because you can Google this and you can probably figure out who it is. And I read about a month ago with this exact business that I'm talking about that's going to be taken over, well, could be, if everyone votes for it and if it goes, goes through all the hurdles that it has to do for it to be sold. I saw that someone uh, who is a cornerstone, say, shareholder in this business, they increased their stake in the business probably about a month ago. And I think the article said that they brought about $3 million worth of shares, either $3 million, I think it was $3 million shares. But let's just say for an example, they brought 3 million shares at a dollar each, right? So they've spent $3 million. That's using round figures, as I don't know the exact details. Now that $3 million of shares a month later now has a market value of over $5 million. So their argument would, well, if they are not holding those shares on revenue account, what that basically means is that, say you're a share trader, you're most probably holding your shares on a revenue account where you're buying and selling them, you're hoping to make a profit, and that's your business as such. You're, you're probably paying tax on that, on the gains and the losses. Most people, they say their intention for holding shares is to get dividends over time and have those pay them down. It's, it's an investment. It's not covered by... Uh, it's, it's held on capital account, sorry, so not revenue account. This is some technical shit for you here. Basically... I shouldn't have to pay tax on it because we don't have a capital gains tax and my purpose is to hold long term and hopefully get some divvies and I'll pay my tax on my dividends and if I get a gain with fucking happy days but that's you know, that's not what most people have to declare. They don't have to declare their gain in their increase in shares. So I would just about guess that this person isn't trading stocks and they're probably not going to have to pay tax on this gain should they sell out of the shares. So that's $2 million of tax-free income for this person. That wouldn't be bad, would it? Now, if I think if you asked most Kiwis, if you gave them this example and said, look, in a month, this person has made $2 million and doesn't have to pay tax on it, do you think that's fair or unfair? And you gave that to the population of New Zealand to vote on, you could just about guess what they would vote for. But again, like I say, I don't make the rules. This is me trying to help you understand the game and how this stuff does work. And someone said to me, we need to be telling more stories like this so that Kiwis can understand, huh, I get it. I might not have $2 million to put into a business, but say I put $200 in and some Yanks want to come along and they want to pay a 60 or 70 or 80% premium for this, fuck, I can play this game too. And you're not going to pay tax on that gain. Now, a lot of Kiwis effectively are doing this via KiwiSaver now too because your KiwiSaver gains, if you've got any, she's been tough recently, you know, they're not being accounted for tax either. Yes, dividends and stuff like that, you'll be paying some some taxes and whatnot as you go and interest and depending on what you're holding in your KiwiSaver. But for a lot of us, you know, we are getting a little bit of the benefit of this stuff and 
we are, you know, I don't know, there might be some KiwiSaver funds that have actually got this business in it. So there could be some people who indirectly benefit without actually realising. But I guess it shows you that if you highlight examples that are going to trigger yourself because you think far out, you know, I could never do that at that level of money, that seems completely unfair. Then you end up back at the, oh, the rich get richer type thing and then you get pissed off and then you don't take any action yourself and the world's unfair, what's the fucking point, or the elites, or the patriarchy is the latest one that Mike and I love taking the piss out of each other about on the podcast because we don't even know what that is, and you're down that rabbit hole of just, this is this is just bullshit, but everywhere you look, in finance and business and taxes and countries and different rules, people will think it's unfair, and some people will think that it is fair. So I think this highlights that example very well and there are different ways to look at this stuff too. Now, recently also I did a a reel about if you could build up a side hustle that could actually be sold, you could sell that business at a tax-free gain. Now, it could be that you build up a customer base of clients that you do their lawn mowing for and you put them on a subscription type model and you get that humming and you sell that business to somebody and you build it up from scratch, but it guarantees someone, say, 60 grand of income a year, that's going to be worth something to somebody who goes, well, I want to do that, but I don't want to have to build from scratch. Yes, I will buy that off you. I get all the equipment. I get the customer list. I get the ongoing revenue. I get the goodwill of the brand that you've built up. And they say, cool, could I pay you $60,000 for all of that? Well, you're going to cash that out as a tax-free gain. Now that is just how it works in New Zealand and that may change in time as well, but it doesn't just have to be about the big boys and the rich and the ones that have got all the cash. You can be thinking about it in different ways and in that same reel and a different podcast I've explained how I've had a friend who did exactly that and they built up a small business in the time that they had whilst they had a child and were looking for ways to get a bit of extra cash and I won't say what the business is, but and you don't need to know what it is. You just need to know that it's possible because even if you know what it is, it's not like you're going to go and do it. You need to do something that you can actually do and that you'd want to do. But what they did is they just had a steady stream of income coming in. They could fit it around their child. And one day someone got in touch and said, hey, we'd love to buy this business. Is it for sale? And they were like, no. And they sort of thought, well, we hadn't even thought that it could be for sale. And they said, okay, well, if you want to have a think about it, let me know. And they went back to them and said, you know, what are you, what are you willing to pay for it? And they said, well, tell us a bit more about it, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll give you 100 grand for it. And they're like, holy fuck. So they made 100 grand and they didn't have to pay tax on that because they're selling the business, business, no, a tax-free gain, capital gain, and that's 100 grand net in the back pocket. Now, if you were to try and earn that through the PAYE system, as you know, as interest rate, uh, sorry, as tax rates have been, hammering all of us as as incomes have gone up because we're drifting into higher levels of income and therefore the tax is either at 30 or 33% for most people earning over 48 and and then $70,000, you know, it's very hard to stack $100,000 when you are copying the cost of living at such a high rate now and then trying to save with your after-tax income, which for everything over $48,000 is getting taxed at 30%. Then up to seventy thousand, anything after seventy thousand dollars getting taxed at thirty three percent. So you're only really left with, let's just say, 
that you're only really left with 70% of your income to then over 48 grand to try and then save from because the first 48 you're probably using in this world to try and pay for your food, your rent, your insurances, all these different things that you're having to pay for. So it's getting hard to save and this means that you're probably then going to feel like it's more unfair when you see people selling a business tax-free or selling shares tax-free and making capital gains and then not having to pay any tax. But again, these people don't set the rules. They are just playing the game to the way that the rules are set up. Anyway, back to this company. So this New Zealand company is looking to be purchased by an American company. Therefore, as well, it may no longer be in New Zealand hands. Now, I know a lot of people too will be like, well, that's fucking shit. Why do we want New Zealand businesses to be owned by offshore companies? And that's why maybe it won't go through. But this company is looking at it in America going, we could scale that up. You know, we could give it more capital. We've, they, they will have a reason that they want to buy it, right? And they're not just going to come along and try and, you know, offer this massive premium for shits and giggles. They've obviously got a plan of how they can make money from their money too. So, They've actually said that they're going to expand New Zealand operations, they're going to employ further Kiwis. But again, a good example of all the different things that come from understanding what's going on out there in the world. Another good example from this is capital looking for a place to live, right? So an American company looking over here probably thinking, well, shit, our dollar's at 1.6 effectively. You know, Even if they're offering $1.70 for... Um, a share that's 90 cents, it's basically, let's just take it to say that a dollar a share in New Zealand, it's basically saying, well, for each share, we'll give you a dollar US because they've got that advantage of having that stronger dollar. But they've obviously got money and they've, they're looking to invest, they're looking to grow. A lot of us are thinking contraction, we're thinking recession, we're thinking inward, we're thinking it's hard. And they're going front foot, fuck, let's go down to New Zealand and buy this business. And I had a meeting with somebody recently who's very well connected and they said to me, Luke, you're going to see more of this because there is a lot of money coming out of wealthy countries and it's looking for a place to live. And what that means is it's money looking to find a good investment and a good place to park it so they can turn it into more because that's what most people want to do. And these Americans have obviously thinking, you know, and believe that this New Zealand business is a place to park their cash. So they're willing to pay a large premium to buy the entire business. Now, This also highlights the importance of investing outside of just hoping to see your number get bigger. I don't think that that's actually what investing is about. Yes, that's probably the first step where you think, oh, this stuff's pretty cool, but you actually get to learn so much more about the world, business, shares, and taxes, things that you wouldn't have thought about if you didn't invest as well. So, you know, if you think, oh, I don't have enough money to invest, it may not actually be about that. It's actually... Firstly, about habits and creating those, and then also thinking about what can you learn through this process. You're going to have to learn, firstly, just at a very high level, let's just think about this, setting up a shares account. How does all that work? Then how do you pick what stock to put your first dollar into? Oh, it asked me for all my IRD tax details and what's my tax rate. Shit, why do they need that? Oh, probably because of dividends, you know. So then you're going to get money into that account, you're going to buy that stock, and then you're going to sit there and it's probably going to just trickle along. But something like this could happen for you where then you get a notification and you get other people that you may know who may have this stock too. So like, fuck, did you see what's going on here? You may start to surround yourself with different people. You may end up in a sharesies group with other people who are talking about shares and investing, and maybe one of them has 
done something over a longer time period and they other people are saying, oh shit, it doesn't feel like it's worth investing at the moment because things are going down. And someone says, well, I invested through the GFC, this is what it was like for me. Then you start to learn from their experience. So you're not just investing your money to see the dollar go up. You are paying for other information, access, skills, mindsets and things like that. But ultimately as well, the habit. Now last weekend, and I've got this to finish this weekend, I was reading a book that is 100 years old and it's called The Law, the Laws of Success. And one of them is the habit of saving. And it's fuzzy because basically 100 years later, it couldn't be more true. And it's explaining what I've just tried to explain there, that saving isn't just about trying to put money aside. It's actually building the habit of that because then you get to then do something with that in the future. You get to create discipline of trying to live within your means, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that we've, we've spoken about previously, but to think that that's sitting there in a book 100 years ago and it uses an example of saving $5 a month because who knows what money was worth back then, but then highlighting how, I can't remember how after quite a long time you might have $10,000 and that was obviously mind-blowing for people 100 years ago. Now today, if you use that as an example, people would be like, fuck, well, 10 grand, what's the, yeah, there is no point in saving. So, you know, money has been broken over that 100 years and in that journey too, but then all of the incomes have changed and whatnot too. So, you know, it just shows you that people have been thinking about this stuff for ages and it doesn't just come back to saving because saving's the thing to do. It's about the habits and same thing with investing habits and therefore what you can learn along the way as well. Now, before we go, I am not the cornerstone investor that had three million bucks worth of shares a month ago. So rest assured that my investment was enough to be life-changing. I I can't even remember. I might have put in just over $1,000 and it might be worth $2,000 now. It might have been $1,200 up to $2,000 if I was to sell it. So yeah, awesome and really cool, but not really life-changing or shit, Luke's out of here, he's probably off to retire to the beach now, holy shit. But I've got to learn a lot through this process too, and now I've been able to reteach some of these lessons, and it's not every day that you get a stock rocket up 60%, is it? Now, if you want to have a look at it, it's called MHM Automation, and if you want to read about people investing into it, you could search MHM Automation and then ask the internet to show you news articles and you might be able to read some of the news articles about the sale, the potential sale. You'll be able to follow the journey. You'll be able to see who invested over a month ago a stack of coin into it. And you'll be able to learn some other things as well that are being spoken about now because this American company wants to buy this cool, shouldn't say little, but cool New Zealand business. And they've obviously done some some really cool shit for someone to come along and go, you know, we're willing to pay a premium for that. So well done to a New Zealand business role modelling what is possible out there in the world stage and that people will come and they will pay a premium for the hard work that you've done. Right, have a brilliant weekend. You are one of over 8,675 recipients, four and something thousand on LinkedIn. Podcast listens are dropping off a little bit, 48,500 downloads in October. Uh, Did you know, survey respondents this week to a recent Reserve Bank survey expect house price inflation to be 4.84% in a year and 6.22% in two years. Now basically in summary, this is signs that people are expecting house prices, house prices, not prices, house prices to rise.
Now, what do we sometimes say on the pod? We say that, well, when people expect something to happen, it starts to happen because they then create the behavior for that to be the thing that does happen. So clearly, people responding to the survey are seeing what they need to see to believe that house prices are going to go up. Will that happen? Will it happen to 4.84%? Will it happen to 6.22% in two years? I don't know. But remember as well, that's probably nominal. And that just basically means that the number is getting bigger by that percentage. But then adjust that for inflation and that number actually isn't as high. Very quickly, on an Instagram story the other day, I was trying to explain how when you adjust house prices for inflation, they're not increasing as fast as what people are sort of making them out to be and we are in that the tide is turning in the housing space so people are going oh shit holy shit you know I I need to get involved but if your income is continuing to increase and your income potential is outstripping inflation because you're able to make money faster than the devaluation of the currency slash the cost of houses going up then you don't really have anything to worry about because houses are actually getting cheaper to you because you're able to then hopefully stack more money aside, giving you a bigger deposit, allowing you to buy property that other people aren't able to buy because they're not keeping up with it. And that again comes back to why Mikey and I are often banging on about increasing your income and thinking about those things. And yes, I appreciate that's very hard to do and that won't actually be relevant for many people because their incomes won't be growing faster than the rate of inflation and the rate of house price inflation, or it may just be above that. But what we don't do a good job in this country on is sort of explaining that, and it is even hard for me to explain, but we go in the media and on the news and on content saying, right, house prices are up 6%. You go, fuck's sake, like how the hell am I going to do this? But what's happened to your income in that time? Have you been able to put more money aside, et cetera, et cetera? But Obviously, when you're getting smacked by tax too, it's making it harder to save and then stay ahead of that. All right, hopefully you have learned some good stuff in there. That's a long one. Be good out there this weekend, and I'll see you next time on keepthechange.co.nz's Money Mail.